Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Eleanor Ford, and my latest cookbook is called Fire Island, Recipes from Indonesia. For more Cookery by the Book, you can follow me on Instagram. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share it with a friend. I'm always looking for new people to enjoy Cookery by the Book. Now on with the show. First off, congratulations on winning two Gourmand World Cookbook Awards. Tell us about these awards. Well, I'm delighted that Far Islands has been uh, chosen as a country winner in two categories. One is international cookbook and the other is spice, which is particularly pleasing as Indonesia is a land of spice. Indonesia is a traveler's paradise with cuisine as vibrant and thrilling as its scenery. You give us a personal, intimate portrait of a country and its cooking through your unique lens. During your childhood, you went back to Indonesia year after year because your father was an architect and built hotels in Bali and Java. Describe the magic of the Indonesian archipelago. As a child, it was the most magical place to go because perhaps the diversity that comes with such a large and extensive set of islands. I'd spend time on the beaches, of course, but also in palaces uh, belonging to sultans and in temples with amazing festivals and ceremony and gamelan music, and then at night markets eating the incredible food. It was uh, a really exciting place to spend a lot of my childhood. Now, how often did you go back? Did you go back a few times a year or once a year? Oh, we'd be there quite a lot. I was spent... about three or four months every year there uh, and sometimes I would took homeschooling with me and other times it was during the holidays but it was a big part of my childhood and I lived this dual life between London and uh, the city and then this amazing tropical idyll of Indonesia. How did your mom like it? Oh she loved it. She was uh immersed fully in the culture she learned the language we we felt very lucky lucky and be privileged to be there and made a lot of friends it it was a great life for all of us so then let's fast forward to one particularly gray winter in london when you and your husband decided to move to indonesia with your young children why did you want to make that move and what was it like coming back now as a mother It was this book that spurred our move there. I had grown up eating these incredible flavors of Indonesia. They were just part of my upbringing. And I realized that they hadn't traveled far outside of the country. People don't tend to know about Indonesian food unless they've spent time in the country. And I realized that I wanted to share these flavors that I knew so well. I wanted to share them with my own children in the way that they'd been a part of my childhood. And I wanted to share them in my writing as well. So we uh, yes, made a decision as a family to move there when the children were still young enough not to have started school. And we had the freedom to explore and to travel. How did the children like it? Oh, they couldn't have been more excited by this new world that they entered, sort of running barefoot through uh, through the grass and uh, and on the beaches. They had a completely new outlook on life, and I was very happy as a mother to see that for them. 
Oh, that's so dreamy. Are you living there now? No, no, we're back in London now. It was a a four-month move that was spent intensively researching as much as I could about the food and the recipes. And then I wanted to bring them back and test everything in my London kitchen to make sure that the methods and the ingredients translated to a Western kitchen and that this could be food that anyone could cook, not just ingredients that sound exotic and wonderful but are out of reach. So nearly 18,000 islands make up the world's largest archipelago, covering the distance of Britain to Iraq. That boggles my mind that it's one <laughs> single country. It's, it's an extraordinary country. Um, unity and diversity is one of the national mottos because there is such huge diversity. Uh, but there are certain things that unite people, people of different religions, different races, different languages. Uh, yet there's something and there's something about the food, I think, that's a, a unifier. One thing that crosses all of these different islands is a love for chili sambals, the fiery sauces that you put alongside foods so you can adjust the heat and spice and sourness of your meal as you eat. First, let's talk about the chapters. How did you choose to divide up this cookbook? I thought it was so very interesting. Well, what I wanted to do was show the necessity for balance within an Indonesian meal. So rather than having a starter or a main course, that's not really how food is eaten. I've divided the chapters by texture and by flavor. So to put a complete Indonesian meal together, you might want to choose Uh, a different dish from different chapters, something that's rich and creamy, maybe a coconut milk curry that's slow cooked and unctuous, and then maybe something that's quickly fried and aromatic, uh, like um, maybe some grilled chicken satay with some peanut sauce, and then a salad that's fresh and bright with grated coconut and spices, and uh, finally you might want a sour element, something like prawns uh, cooked in a chili sambal with lime leaves so that you've got different flavors that all balance each other out and complement each other in one meal. For example, chapter one, crunchy snacks and street food on page 24 with ingredients for fragrance on page 38. What are some ingredients to add fragrance? So to add fragrance uh, to the food, there are those typical ingredients from Southeast Asia like lemongrass and lime leaves. Then there's also the roots, the galangal and turmeric and ginger. Uh, So you've got all of the, and then the lime leaves I mentioned earlier, as well as the actual cafe lime fruit. All of these are bringing that kind of bright, aromatic, scented notes to the food. And they work so well together. Um, often they're combined in a different dish, lots of these different flavors, but they they work off each other and each kind of lifts the other. And then we move on to chapter seven, which is entitled Awakening the Senses. You wrote that Indonesians love to add an element of crunch to food and the crackling sound as you eat is said to stimulate the appetite. Tell us about that and the family owned food stalls highlighted in chapter seven. Yes, well, one of the things I love about Indonesian food is that crunch has such an important element. Every meal, along with uh, the different textures and kind of rich levels of richness and levels of spice that I was talking about earlier, every meal should have something crunchy, something that crackles in the mouth, something that um, 
makes makes your mouth excited. There's a there's a word in Indonesian, enak, which is delicious, but it's more than delicious because it's uh, it's something that's appealing for all the senses. So it could be a music, it could be enak or a massage, or definitely food because it's more than just the taste. It's how it looks and it's how it feels in the mouth. So crunchy elements. Um, there's always something uh, on the table which you can sprinkle over your food. It might be uh, serendang, which is uh, grated coconut that's been fried with spices until it becomes crunchy and dry, and you can scatter that over. It might be rice crackers, or there are malinjo nut crackers called emping, which are a little bit bitter, but anyone uh, who's eaten them knows how addictive they can be. Uh, so, so yes, adding something, even if it's just a scattering of those fried shallots that you can buy, crisp fried shallots in a tub, uh, it always adds a little extra element to the dish. Is a meal a meal if it doesn't have rice? Ah, that's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, a, quite a lot of Indonesian meal, well, no, an Indonesian will say that they haven't eaten unless they've eaten rice, but then quite a lot of snacks can be very substantial in their own rights. So there might be a large dish of noodles, but it's not a meal unless rice is there as the core element. Rice is sort of the centre, it's the canvas on which the other flavours are painted, uh, but, but rice is said to be yeah, the core part of any meal. So street food makes up about a third of the daily food in Indonesia. Would you say street food is the most authentic depiction of Indonesian dishes? I don't think I'd necessarily say authentic. I think um, I'm a home cook myself. I'm drawn so much to home cooking. And I think that it's in the home you often get the sort of simplest dishes that make the most impact. I think street food is hugely important and everyone loves it. And uh, it's very much part of, of daily life in Indonesia because you can go out, you can grab a snack. There is wonderful different things to try. And I think that it's, it's nice in giving you the variety of different things, uh, different flavors, different textures to choose and to eat in a single day, to choose something that someone else has cooked. But I'm always gravitating to what's cooked at home. I think that those are the dishes that I enjoy the most. Would you say that home cooking and street food are two different types of cuisines? Uh, I think that there's a difference in how people cook at home as opposed to a street stall. A street stall vendor tends to have one dish that they've perfected. They've been cooking that same dish in the same way for years. They've got their own methods. Uh, often they might be something a little more technically demanding. It might involve deep frying. There might be a hot grill where you've got satay smoking and being turned with flames crackling at the satay sticks. Uh, it might be something where a lot of different sauces and ingredients are added to noodles and adjusted according to um, the person buying its taste. I think that home cooking tends to be uh, a little slower, perhaps. Uh, it doesn't have that same drama of, of a street food theatre. It's something that is made for a family, it's made with time and attention. So kind of slower in, in its cooking, it's not that fast stir-frying. Indonesian stir-frying is different to Chinese in that you don't have that blazing hot wok where you've got to move quickly. Things are done more slowly, more measured, a little more food in the wok uh, so that flavours have time to develop. 
Describe the sights and sounds of the street food scene. Yes, sounds is an important thing, because when you have roving street vendors uh, with their perambulating carts, uh, they often are making a sound to draw uh, customers uh, out from the houses, out from their places of work. So they might be banging a piece of bamboo, which might signal one dish or clanging a bell for another. Uh, the carts that they're pushing are called kakilima, meaning five-footed. That's from the three wheels of the cart and the two of the vendor that are pushing them. And each vendor will have their own wares that they're selling. And uh, and so often that will come with this cacophony of noise and smells. It's, it's a very exciting uh, place to eat. It all starts with bamboo. For us home cooks, describe the spice pastes that are the foundation of most of the recipes. Well, what's interesting about Indonesian cooking is it relies so much on fresh spices rather than dried, particularly this coming from the original spice islands where so many of our dried spices come from. Uh, Indonesia, after all, was the only place where cloves and nutmeg once grew. But in the daily cooking, it tends to be the fresh spices that are ground together to form a spice paste. This typically will start with shallots and garlics, the red and white sisters, they're called, as they come together, uh, ginger, perhaps galangal, chili, and uh, often lemongrass or lime leaves are in there. So these will be ground up and Different adjustments, different additions can really change the foundation of a dish, but it's a similar palette of ingredients. And this is ground up together, uh, either in a food processor or pestle and mortar, and then fried to release the fragrance into the dish before other ingredients are added. And so this really is the kind of foundation of so much of the cooking. In the cookbook, you give us an in-depth look at an Indonesian kitchen. Well, I wouldn't say that there's one particular kitchen I saw a huge variety I tried to go to as many as I could to learn from as many people as I could how to cook the food uh, traditional kitchens tended to be outside the main house in a separate building so that they could become smoky from the cooking fires uh, and then people would sit outside them uh, on the floors uh, or, or a terrace chopping and preparing the food uh, but I think that one unifier across every kitchen, regardless of how modern and gleaming or how traditional, is the use of an ulek, which is the pestle and mortar used in Indonesia. They're a lovely looking thing. Um, they have a sort of wider, shallow bowl, and they're made of volcanic rock, which is a little textured and gritty. So if you're using it to make a bumbu, the texture really helps break down the ingredients quickly to a paste, and you do it in a kind of pleasing, rocking movement. And that you'll find in every kitchen. Indonesia is the third largest producer in the world of rice, yet it still imports rice. How come? It's just such an important part of the diet. There are some islands that eat rice more than others, those that tend to grow rice themselves. As you move further east, uh, less rice is grown and there's a more of a reliance on starches, uh, sweet potatoes or cassavas, corns. Um, but still people love rice. It's a foundation of the cuisine. And despite these beautiful rice terraced islands, there's, there's not enough to meet with the demand. Cooking is said to awaken the spirit amerta. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, I think this is in uh, 
Balinese and some Javanese culture. Which um, the amerta is held in grains. So apparently chatter disturbs the amerta and children learn about eating without talking. That's a really good parenting tip. <laughs> that made me laugh. Well, it's certainly, yes, some people told me about nursery rhymes they'd learned as, as young children where it was talking about respecting the rice and not talking while you're eating. <laughs> and and I think there are lots of different, of course, different ways of eating in Indonesia. Sometimes it's a big communal event, huge festivals with amazing spreads of foods where people gather. And other times, perhaps on a more day-to-day, where someone will just take a little food um, that's been prepared earlier in the day and sit somewhere quietly without talking, without reading, without being distracted by something else and really concentrate on the food that they're eating. I like that. What's your favorite Indonesian dish in this cookbook that takes you back? Oh, goodness. What takes me back, it would then have to be uh, the pancakes. Um, they're stained green by pandan leaves. Lovely crepes, very easy to make. And inside, there is a filling of palm sugar and fresh grated coconut. And it's so addictive. That's just the taste of my childhood. How are the leaves worked into the pancake? Well, you can do one of two things. You can whiz up a couple of fresh pandan leaves, which have got the most lovely scent. They're sort of often described as a vanilla of Southeast Asian cooking because they're usually used in um, sweet cooking. Sometimes they're added to rice as well. But if you can get the fresh leaves, you can whiz them up with the liquid and then you strain that lovely dark green liquid and add it to the batter for the pancakes. Alternatively, you can buy pandan essence, rather like vanilla essence. And it's got a lovely flavor that it brings. Very subtle, but, but distinctive. The other day, I made your recipe for turmeric jamu on page 224. Describe this. Uh, so jamus are a, a tonic ancient tonic uh, originating in Java over a thousand years ago. Princesses were said to drink jamus to keep them young and vital. And, and it's something that's, that's why continued. I made it. <laughs> Did you feel young I'm and vital? I'm feeling so young and vital. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, turmeric one is lovely because it's, it's very fresh. It's that bright orange and then it's mixed with uh, is it with ginger? I think it's got in that one. Yes, uh, as well and lime juice and honey. There, there, and honey. There are lots of different variants, all using leaves or herbs. There's one I make quite often with tamarind, which is sweet uh, because of palm sugar that's added, and that's got the pandan leaves as well. And just something about it rather reminds me of Coca-Cola. That oh, sort of. Spices infused with a, a sweet liquid. There's something like an early cola about it. Some of the jamus can be very taxing. They can be very bitter and green, particularly those with extra health-giving qualities. But they can be delightful <laughs> to drink as well. Uh, and I, I've gone for the, the less excruciating versions in the book, the ones that are a real pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> now to my segment called My Favourite Cookbook. So aside from this cookbook, what's your all-time favorite cookbook and why? Oh, this is such a difficult choice because I'm an avid collector of cookbooks. I've got far too many. But I think a really favorite author of mine is Gil Meller, who writes about English ingredients in a very beautiful way. He's a real masterclass in using flavors and seasonal cooking. And what's the name of the cookbook? His first cookbook is called Gather. That's a favorite of mine. Where can we find you on the web and social media? 
I am on Instagram, Eleanor Ford Food. Thank you so much, Eleanor, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight talking to you. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book. 